Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, episode two, a brief history of secret history, part two, from the late medieval period to modernity. Last time we embarked on a foolhardy quest to survey the development of key movements from late antiquity in the Middle Ages, basing our discourse on a list which we stole from the website of the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam, online at www.amsterdamhermetica.nl. Now we're faced with a funny jump in time. We go from the occult sciences, which we discussed last time, astronomy, astrology, alchemy, and magic, to, and I quote, Christian Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, Christian Theosophy, and Illuminism. Now, all of these movements, properly speaking, and with some important outlying exceptions, are movements of the Reformation period. That is to say, they exist in and because of the period after the breakdown of Catholic hegemony in the West. The Reformation is usually dated for convenience from the year 1517, the date when Martin Luther famously nailed his theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg although it was in many ways just a continuation of movements within Christianity which had already been stirring things up for about a century. But with the Reformation, things heat up in a big way, and in some ways it's here that Western esotericism really comes into its own. But hang on, rewind. We learned in school that you basically have antiquity, and then nothing happens for hundreds of years except for a lot of jousting and the Black Death, and then the Renaissance comes along and history starts up again. Are you saying that this is actually true? No, gentle listener, I'm not saying that. In fact, at this stage, I'm saying we need to interrogate our little list of ingredients that make up Western esotericism, turn around, and head straight back to the Middle Ages. Now, we've talked a lot about medieval matters already. Astronomy, astrology, alchemy, and natural and spiritual magic were all traditions which throve in medieval times. In the Latin West, but also in the Orthodox realm, aka Byzantium, and perhaps most crucially, in the Islamic world. But there were a few other important developments along the way, ones which might or might not be seen as part of Western esotericism proper, but which certainly had a huge influence on the esotericism that emerged during the Renaissance and the Reformation. One key element in the Renaissance esoteric synthesis was, of course, the Jewish Kabbalah. In its Christianized form, Kabbalah is a signature esoteric interest, but in its origins, it's a Jewish medieval esoteric school, or number of schools, all its own. The name Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew root meaning to transmit or hand down, and Kabbalah might be translated simply as tradition. But the complex schools of thought and ritual practice which travel under the name Kabbalah claim to be more than simply any old tradition. They are the esoteric wisdom tradition existing within Judaism, the oral Torah, which God gave to Moses alongside the five books of scripture which are traditionally attributed to that sage. Jewish Kabbalah is an esoteric tradition within Judaism, primarily. It is a vast and utterly fascinating subject, containing elements of esoteric exegesis of canonical texts, including the Hebrew scriptures, the Mishnah or commentary tradition, and also properly Kabbalist texts, like the Zohar, on which much more will be said in the course of the podcast. Of practical magic, although Kabbalists might object to this use of the term for what they do, of grueling, ecstatic meditation exercises, of complex numerological symbolism, and much else besides. So Kabbalah within Judaism is a fascinating and very complex phenomenon which we'll spend a lot of time looking at. Now, 
Kabbalah was not born in the Renaissance when it was first taken up by Christian scholars looking for esoteric Christian wisdom, but rather in the 12th and 13th centuries, the High Middle Ages, in southern Spain. Of course, a Kabbalist might tell you that the Kabbalah originated on Mount Sinai when God revealed it to Moses, but we are going to go with the more conservative dating suggested by textual scholars. At the same time, in southern Spain, the 12th and 13th centuries, we had a flourishing of some of the greatest philosophical and esoteric thinkers of the Islamic world. Think of Ibn Rushd, widely known by his Latin name Averroes, and Ibn Arabi, a kind of Sufi Proclus meets William Blake. And wait a minute, Maimonides, arguably the most important Jewish philosopher of all time, was also active in southern Spain in the 12th and early 13th centuries. Southern Spain in the 12th and early 13th centuries is clearly a place we need to stop off on our journey through esoteric history. So we will. The Middle Ages also gave rise to an astounding flowering of what has been called Christian mysticism. Indeed, it was in the Jewish-Islamic Christian convivencia of southern Spain in the 13th century that the Catalan mystic Catholic writer Ramon Llull, better known in English as Raymond Lully or Lull, lived and wrote. And Lull's work had an enormous and largely forgotten impact on European thought, not least on Western esotericism. Now, this podcast will be avoiding the term mysticism for reasons which will be investigated at some point, but let's look for a moment at some of the thinkers usually grouped under the rubric of Christian mysticism. Can any survey of Western esotericism be complete if it ignores the work of Meister Eckhart, the great medieval master of negative theology, or of Hildegard of Bingen, whose incredible oeuvre involving visionary poetry, musical compositions, and illuminations prefigures the multimedia esoteric books of the Renaissance, like Michael Myers' Atalanta Fugians, or even the illuminated works of William Blake. What about The Cloud of Unknowing, an astonishing anonymous work of yearning, tortured piety, and longing in the face of an unseen, hidden god whose only presence is an eternal absence? What of the scholastic philosophers, even? like Thomas Aquinas and other dudes who we now think of as very mainstream, who were read and absorbed by seminal esoteric thinkers of the Renaissance, influencing their approaches to bridging the gap between the rational and the divine, and who served as important transmitters of a kind of transformed Platonism from the Islamic world. Clearly, there's a lot going on in the Latin Middle Ages to interest us, and we'll be spending a lot of time there. We'll also need to stick our noses into the almost totally forgotten intellectual life of the Orthodox Roman world, which of course had its own Platonist traditions, its own esoteric philosophies, its own magical traditions, and even its own communities of esoteric Jews, all of which influenced the formation of Western esotericism, sometimes directly and sometimes in more roundabout ways. But the most important place in the Middle Ages, where we'll be spending quite a lot of time, is of course the Islamic world. Of course, we've already been discussing the Islamic world because the great centers of learning in southern Spain were all Islamic centers. Maimonides, the great Jewish thinker, wrote in Arabic because that was the language of sciences in his day. It was here, in the Islamic land stretching from Spain to Central Asia, that for about 700 years the most important work in the sciences and in the esoteric sciences was being done, and it's impossible to overemphasize the importance of Islamicate learning on the development of Europe as she began to emerge from the Middle Ages. Now. There's a strange narrative prevailing in the West nowadays regarding our Islamic heritage. And from a historian's perspective, it's completely absurd. That is to say, there's an idea that the West has no Islamic heritage. In terms of mainstream public discourse, we're in some senses still living in a kind of imaginary Christendom with Jews as 
honorary members, even though the term Christendom has ceased to be relevant in a cultural or religious sense. We will, of course, be exploring the real story, the secret history, and in doing so, reinstating the Islamic component into the West, where it inextricably belongs. If this sounds provocative, like perhaps I'm indulging in some revisionist history with a kind of pro-Islamic agenda, just wait until we look at the evidence. Everything I've just said will then be seen as a statement of the obvious, or even an understatement. Apologies in advance to proud Westerners who see themselves as scions of a hermetically sealed Christian tradition that owes nothing to nobody. Dr. Evidence is coming to call, and he's pissed off at being ignored for so long. So, having said a few things about the importance of the medieval tradition to what we call Western esotericism, an importance that is all too often understated, possibly because of Francis Yates's characterization as medieval magic as dirty and horrible and yucky, as opposed to the bright, wonderful Platonist magic of the Renaissance. Let's get back to the Renaissance and the Reformation period and talk about the further evolution of the esoteric thought that we're looking at. We were trying to talk about Christian Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, Christian theosophy, and Illuminism, but we had to back up and fill in some provocative blanks in the story. Now we can continue. This is the stuff that people are most likely talking about when they say Western esotericism in an academic context. Our material from the Renaissance onwards becomes so rich that a summary like this one will run out of time before we really scratch the surface. But let's go ahead and scratch the surface anyway. Christian Kabbalah, of course, begins, as far as we can tell, with Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, a Florentine nobleman and esoteric thinker, and a colleague of Marsilio Ficino, whom we saw earlier translating Plato and the Corpus Hermeticum in a quest for ancient wisdom. Now, Pico added to the heady Renaissance mix of Christianity and ancient Platonist thought elements of the Jewish Kabbalah. This move quickly gained popularity, and Christian notions of Kabbalah, which generally don't represent an accurate image of the Jewish Kabbalah, became very important hermeneutical and theoretical, even magical, tools for esoteric thought and practice. So, let's step back for a moment and have a look at the mix of ideas that are contributing to form what we call Western esotericism in the Renaissance. And what better way to do that than by consulting once again the art of cocktail mixing. So to mix a basic Renaissance esoteric cocktail, pour a generous measure of Catholic Christianity inspired by all manner of mystical and esoteric medieval thought, add a generous splash of the ideas of the late Platonists mentioned in the previous episode, adding hermetic and Gnostic ideas to taste, and shake well. Optionally, add a dash or more of Kabbalistic ideas and methods, and stir in strong theoretical commitment to the theory and practice of magic as an essential branch of science and even of theology. Serve hot in a hermetic crater, and you have a drink I call the Yates paradigm, perfect for sipping while spending a cozy night at home contemplating the eternal verities of the ancient tradition hidden within the world's religious and philosophic traditions, all of which, of course, support the truths of Christianity. Now, this beverage is delicious, and we're going to spend a lot of time sampling it in the course of our podcast, but more refined or more jaded palates might require the long version, which arises during the Reformation. Take our basic mix and pour it over the ice of increasing religious ferment and outright war and persecution throughout the European Reformation, and serve with an olive of new types of secret society, and you have the heady brew known as the Rosicrucian. Perfect for sipping as you debate the nature of the true religion with friends, who only a generation ago were quite content exploring the esoteric meaning of Christianity from within the established church, 
but who are now desperate to try to use esoteric means to discover the true path amid a welter of competing revolutionary ideas that are tearing Christianity apart. Rosicrucianism is fascinating because, like the late antique hermitism discussed last week, it didn't exist. In 1614 and 1615, Two anonymous Rosicrucian manifestos appeared, symbolically complex documents drawing on Renaissance Western esotericism for their content, purporting to reveal to the world a secret brotherhood dedicated to promulgating science and hermetic philosophy and putting to rest the religious strife currently tearing Europe apart. Now, it's important to understand just how horrible the European Reformation was. It's been estimated that in the Thirty Years' War, which was fought from 1618 to 1648, Something like half of the population of Central Europe died. So that's not just soldiers fighting, but peasants being massacred and all the usual misery that comes from a long, drawn-out war with no regard for the civilian population other as a source of food and lodging. Think about that. It actually makes the Second World War seem like a relatively civilized affair, and that takes some doing. Now that's leaving aside the English Civil War, which was fought from 1642 to 1651, nine years of warfare which ended in England being run by a kind of Protestant Taliban for another ten years or so. So it's easy to see why, when opposing sides were convinced the strife could only end when all of Europe was either converted to their version of Christianity or dead, more imaginative thinkers began searching outside the box for solutions. Western esotericism, with its ideas of primordial wisdom which might be found in many religious traditions throughout history, provided a perfect set of solutions, and the initial Rosicrucian manifestos exploited the entire Renaissance synthesis in their message. Alchemical symbolism, Kabbalah, hermetic ideas, esoteric Christianity, and the idea of hidden ancient wisdom now revealed for the first time, all with a promise of solving the problems of strife within Christianity. In fact, as we'll be discussing, this process of trying to save Christianity from itself had already begun in the esoteric Renaissance in the works of Ficino, Pico, and others, but during the Reformation, it really increased in urgency, along with the increasingly urgent problem of fragmentation, warfare, and all kinds of intellectual strife. Now, if you've read Francis Yates's book, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, you'll be familiar with the Rosicrucian furor, which swept over Europe soon after the publication of the Manifestos, and the complex intellectual movement which soon arose in response, called Rosicrucianism for short. Alas, like so much in Yeats's work, the Rosicrucians, so elegant as a historical construct, dissolve upon examination. There certainly was a furor, um, though probably a relatively minor one in the scheme of things. I mean, they call it Western esotericism for a reason. The number of those interested in this sort of stuff has always been relatively small, which is why the audience of this podcast will probably always be relatively small, but never mind. Between 1614 and 1620... About 400 manuscripts and books were published which discussed the Rosicrucian documents. That is a lot, but not world-shatteringly many. People were accused of being Rosicrucians, and to deny that you were a member of the Rosicrucians, of course, just proved that you were one, since it's well known that this was a secret society, and the members, of course, would deny that they were members, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of complex interplay of interconfessional duels, Reformation and counter-Reformation ideas in action, and of course, esoteric ideas like magic and alchemy in the Rosicrucian Furor. And we'll spend a lot of time discussing these movements and hoo-hahs in the course of the podcast. Now, there were indeed many new types of secret society 
arising in the Reformation period, putting secret in quotations, of course, to indicate that these societies were not necessarily truly secret in any way, but that they did utilize the rhetorics of inclusion and exclusion typical of esoteric movements. We might cite Freemasonry and a host of others which really took off from about the beginning of the 17th century. That isn't to say there wasn't genuine secrecy in these movements, simply that the term secret society doesn't automatically indicate a secret society. But what we never find historically is a group of actual Rosicrucians responsible for the initial Rosicrucian manifestos, secret adepts who published these works to alert Europe to the revolutionary changes that were about to occur. Of course, soon after the publication of the manifestos, we suddenly find lots of Rosicrucians. Rosicrucians popping up everywhere you look. An imaginary secret society whose time has come is like a market opportunity. As soon as you think one up, some aspiring entrepreneur will dart in and fill the gap. So like the tres, the T-R-E-S, in Umberto Eco's novel Foucault's Pendulum, the Rosicrucian idea soon found a host of volunteers stepping forward to be some variant on the original and ancient illuminated order of the Rosen Cross. The history of Rosicrucianism is, is thus simultaneously a history of historical secret societies and the power of fake news to shape reality in surprising ways. And secret societies and fake news have been constant companions ever since. We all know about the Illuminati, who secretly rule the world, or at least the internet, for their evil purposes. Now, these evil purposes can have a huge range, but what seems to be agreed on is that the Illuminati are behind everything that happens. So, there might be a world Jewish takeover being planned by the Illuminati, or there might be an atheist communist takeover being planned by the Illuminati, or, a personal favorite of mine, a Jewish atheist communist takeover. This is the sort of stuff that exists in the echo chamber of the internet and non-academic conspiracy fiction, or, let's say, conspiracy worldview um, documentation. But there really was a historical order of the Illuminati, and the true history is actually much more interesting than the um, silliness. History gives us a more concrete and, in the end, more interesting number of real groups to look at. We could also have a look at the Martinists, the Jesuits, let's not forget the Freemasons, of course, and what about the Thule Gesellschaft, the Theosophical Society? All of these and more will flit across the screen of our narrative as we proceed. And while trying to separate the fact from the fiction, we'll have to be alert to the role that fiction has played in making the facts. Perhaps the myth of the Rosicrucians, or the Illuminati for that matter, has had more power and more important repercussions than any historical group of men could possibly have done. We must thus be alert to the distinction between history and mnemo-history. History, referring to the narrative of stuff people actually did and believed, and mnemo-history, that narrative of what people believed that people did and believed, if you see what I mean. Nemo-history is second-order history, the history of ideas about people and ideas, and there will be a lot of it in this podcast. In other words, to study the Rosicrucians and Rosicrucianism, we have to study the reactions of people to the ideas expressed in the Rosicrucian manifestos and later so-called Rosicrucian works. But only after that reaction had occurred do we actually find genuine historical people calling themselves Rosicrucians that we can identify with any security. The welter of new religious phenomena arising in Christianity gave rise to other esoteric movements as well. Turning to Christian theosophy, we're again firmly in Reformation territory, but following a different stream, a more pietistic, insistently Christian message. 
Here we're dealing overwhelmingly with the thought of one man, a German Christian esoteric thinker, and some would say a visionary of the first water, whose ideas had enormous reverberations throughout European religious life, especially among those in search of alternative roads to the truth, which bypassed the severe strictures of the mainstream churches, or sought a solution to the ongoing intersectarian carnage of the 17th century. I refer, of course, to Jakob Böhme, the cobbler of Görlitz, who lived from 1575 until 1624, dying in the opening years of the Thirty Years' War. Böhme's ideas were an incredibly complex synthesis of many of the currents discussed in this overview so far, although sometimes, as with Kabbalah or Platonism, his thought seems to bear striking similarities without anyone really being able to demonstrate a historical connection. The Böhmian world is at once a personal, immediate Christian world of revelation and vision, and a complex metaphysical hierarchy of invisible realms, divine levels of reality, and so on. The term theosophy is most often used in connection with this work, and the work of his many followers, who were legion throughout Europe. So Christian theosophy should be carefully distinguished from plain old theosophy, which nowadays is usually used to refer to the Theosophical Society and related currents, the hugely influential esoteric group of the 19th and 20th centuries, and even the 21st century, although the Theosophical Society seems to be in reduced circumstances these days. Many developers of Böhme's thought took off on their own tangents and founded their own movements. One such tangent, moving forward in time a little bit, is Illuminism, the name which has been given to a diverse group of intellectual currents which developed alongside and in dialogue with the 18th century Enlightenment. Böhme and the many Beminist currents make for a study of, in the fascinating and fruitful development of novelty within tradition, or the way in which traditional materials can somehow be expressed as something radically new while still preserving their character as known tropes, concepts, and modes of discourse. There's much, much more to discuss in the welter of esoteric movements arising in the Renaissance and Reformation periods, but we're short on time, and you, our audience, may well be becoming short of temper, so we really must turn to modern times. I don't know about you, but I need a drink, so let's pause to mix another cocktail. We start with any variation on the recipe given above for the Rosicrucian, we then mix an equal measure of a triumphant Enlightenment culture, which in hindsight began already in the 17th century to erode belief in the supernatural, but we must be sure not to let the Enlightenment flavors overpower the esoteric content in the mix. Mix well, being careful not to let the two parts of the drink separate, but rather blend into a new synthesis. Voila, a delicious beverage which I call the DT. No, dear listeners, not delirium tremens. It stands for disenchant this. Especially delicious, served with a wedge of avant-garde fantasiac thinking, combining novel modernist ideas, but employing the traditional symbolic language of Western esotericism. Perfect for sipping when contemplating the meaninglessness of life in a random, absurd universe, and simultaneously using Kabbalist tarot cards to divine the will of the gods, or similar. There are, of course, many variations on this exquisite beverage. The podcast, in its final phase, will savor the many delights of, and now I'm quoting from our list once again, the currents of modern occultism, spiritualism, traditionalism, the New Age movement, neo-paganism, ritual magical groups, and a host of contemporary alternative spiritualities and forms of popular occulture. These are all forms of the disenchant this cocktail we've just outlined, existing as they do 
as movements drawing on Western esoteric traditions, but grappling with, engaged with, sometimes fully embracing the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment values. We've jumped ahead, of course, and the 17th century has received quite a bit of attention, but the 18th and 19th seem to have been skipped over. Can it be that in the face of the Enlightenment and the rise of modern science, the esoteric currents of yesteryear withered away, leaving behind perhaps a withered husk, occupying the time of a few friendless nerds and obscurantist weirdos? Hey, what are you trying to say? Well, that is the narrative that triumphalist Whig history has been pushing for quite some time now. It will come as no surprise at this point that it's utterly wrong. The secret history of the Enlightenment and of modernity is a story not of Western esotericism's demise, but of its transformation. Occultism, in all its many facets and wondrous expressions, is one such transformed vehicle of the Western esoteric traditions. Romanticism and its many offshoots has also acted like a kind of counterculture within and alongside dominant discourses of progress, empiricism, the limited, the knowable, and the controllable. The rise of new, strange movements in the 19th century, such as spiritualism or Mormonism, are a constant reminder that the march of empiricist science has never been as cut and dried as its proponents would like to claim. And these movements are all alive and well today. In the final phase of our podcast, many years from now, we'll hopefully be well-placed to shed a lot of light on the secret history of our own times and gain a better understanding of the weird state of affairs we find ourselves in. However, that is a long time in the future, and for the moment, we need somehow to find a way of bringing this episode to a close. Perhaps the best thing to do is leave our tantalizing nod to modern times as a sort of cliffhanger and proceed with the podcast proper. But before we head back to the dawn of Western civilization in the axial age, I think we need to talk to someone who knows a thing or two about Western esotericism as a whole. And who better to start with than Professor Wouter Hanegraaf, chair of the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam, whose website provided us with our narrative structure in this overview. So join us next week for episode three, Wouter Hanegraaf on Western Esotericism, and until then, stay especially esoteric. <laughs>